Psalm 132, please. Psalm 132. It's, uh, I don't know, maybe the word is interesting. Um, by faith, it's remarkable. Uh, in the flesh, it's sometimes funny, but it's remarkable to see how the Lord directs and we uh, redirects. We often say we plan our ways, but the Lord directs our steps. And um, if you'd asked me even a couple weeks ago what this Sunday morning would look like, I would have said, oh, Brother Nathan will be speaking and uh, very likely will be speaking on a subject that would tie in perfectly with um, where the Lord's been directing us for some teaching. And uh, if you really pushed me, I probably may have said, ah, we might be starting in one of those 130s in the Psalms. Um, now, at that time, I didn't know that the Brother Nathan would be me. I thought it was Brother Nathan Griffiths, who was supposed to be coming from Ontario. And uh, the teaching subject, he was coming to talk on stewardship, which was supposed to be a great tie-in to the subject of spiritual gifts, which I still think will be coming. And um, I would have just, knowing our brother to some extent, would have thought probably something like Psalm 133 about dwelling together in unity and the need for us to, uh, however we'll exercise our gifts, it's always for the building up of one another. And uh, lo and behold, um, it is Brother Nathan, who uh, I think is the uh, vessel who the Lord would have to share his word, but it's Tao. And um, I think this is going to tie in very well with where we've been. Um, if you're taking notes, you could almost call this part two uh, for what the Lord shared through Aaron last week as the God who restores. And uh, instead of Psalm 133, we're going to be starting at least in Psalm 132. So I'm going to do something we've done a few times before, but I want to just make sure we're all here. And uh, it's very biblical. I'm going to ask if we can all stand up, at least we who are able. And uh, this is the word of the Lord. And uh, I appreciate you praying for me, brother. But I'm going to read a few verses. We'll probably have others help read in time. But I'm going to read a few verses from Psalm 132 and then just commit our time again to the Lord. And um, I encourage you, as we see throughout Scripture, if you want to add your audible amen, let it be so, Lord, um, feel free to do so. Psalm 132. Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Dot, dot, dot. Down to verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. All God's people say? Amen. Yeah, Father, we just, um, as we read this, uh, just tangibly, um, would you dwell and be amongst us? Uh, all these things that we're hearing south of the border of revival and changed lives and glory to your name, the real sense is just you're there. Um, in your presence, fullness of joy. In your light, we see light. Times of refreshing in the presence of the Lord. And just asking this morning afresh, Lord, um, it's been prayed before, but just pray it again. Um, not just head knowledge, Lord, but experiential heart knowledge of you. Um, not just light, but heat. Um, not just in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much comfort. Um, just that very much what Samuel would say, speak, Lord, your servant, and here we'll say your servants are listening. For your name's sake, we pray it. Amen. You can be seated. I'm grateful for this mic, but there's no way that I'm going to be standing still. I'll project my voice. Um, Psalm 132, verse 13. The Lord has chosen Zion. He's desired it for his dwelling place. Um, show of hands, how many of you here this morning are at least familiar to some degree with that four-letter word that starts with Z and ends in Ion? Zion. How many of us are you at least familiar? Okay, so we got a few hands. From those who put their hands up, what comes to mind when you hear the word Zion? <laughs> There's a lot of people now looking at their feet, not wanting to say anything. Okay, very good. Yeah, she said Israel. 
I got a hand up here. I don't know if she's got, oh, okay. Mom says no. Okay, I'll ask a different question then that might be a little bit uh, more responsive. I expect pretty much every hand to come up with this one. Um, how many of you have heard of the word Jerusalem before? Okay. What comes to mind when you hear the word Jerusalem? Temple. Temple? Good. What is Jerusalem? I'll give you a clue. Where is Jerusalem? In, okay, yeah, modern day Israel. It's a city. Uh, a very controversial city. It's the capital city of Israel, somewhat controversially in present day. Also happens to be the most populated city there. Um, on an international scene, more than a few people would probably say it's the most holy city on planet Earth. Um, it's certainly the most uh, sought-after real estate. And I'm not just saying like from a spiritual or religious perspective, but financially, some of those expensive real estate anywhere in the world is right there in downtown old Jerusalem. Um, it's the most divided capital city in the world. The old city is divided into four parts to try to get some peace. And um, I don't think it would be too much of a stretch to say that in terms of like the geopolitical realm of our day, it's the center. Um, and yeah, for those of us who would take the Bible quite literally, we believe that will be the case until the King of Kings and Lord of Lords comes to rule there. But uh, this morning, I want us not so much to be looking ahead, but actually look back as it relates to Jerusalem. Anyone know what um, the name Jerusalem means? So the last part, Salem, has the same root as what you'd hear, Shalom, which means peace. And it's controversial. It's either the possessor of peace or the city of the possessor of peace. And um, it is the most mentioned and most discussed city in our Bibles. 814 times, according to my eSword on my phone, the word Jerusalem shows up in your Bible. And um, it's not just the name Jerusalem, because there's a number of synonyms. There's a number of other terms that are used to describe this city. Um, can anyone think of some? City of David? City on a hill? City of... God, city of the mighty king, city of truth in Zechariah, city of peace, interestingly enough. Um, it's the holy city, the holy mount, perfection of beauty you'll read in the Old Testament, throne of the Lord. Um, interestingly, you'll read a word, Ariel, A-R-I-E-L, which means lion of God, and it's just a pseudonym for Jerusalem. And um, by the way, if you ever were interested, there's a certain word that starts with Z and ends with Ion. <laughs> Um, that also is mentioned more than a few times in Scripture as a synonym for Jerusalem. Zion literally just means a long-standing, firm, fixed, like, fortress. It's the idea of being like a capital fortress that's going to continue in perpetuity. And what I have for you as a question today is something that will serve as a link, I trust, as we talk about the God who restores, is um, just simply this. Has Jerusalem, the city of the possessor of peace, always been the holy city, always been this great city, always been the city of God, the city of the mighty king? I'm going to give you a hint. When I ask things that rhetorically, the answer is probably no. We have a hint of that in Psalm 132, don't we? where um, David was going to give no rest until he found a dwelling place for God. And then you come to verse 13 and you find out the Lord chose what city, what place to be his dwelling place? Jerusalem or Zion. So here's my question then for you, for those of you who know your Bibles well, and there are theologian points on the table here. Um, does anyone know how it happened that Jerusalem became God's dwelling place? Does anyone know what were the circumstances? Does anyone, I would say who, but we kind of gave it away with a guy named David. But does anyone know where in your Bibles you might find the account of how this city became, well, the city of Zion, the city of God? It's actually two places. You can find some and read more in First Chronicles 11 as the summary, God's editorial but the first place, and the place that the Lord showed me on my just daily reading of this a few weeks ago, um, 2 Samuel chapter 5. 
Let's turn there. If you have a Bible, turn to the left. 2 Samuel chapter 5. And just as you're turning there, I want to just remind you something that I was told when I was young as it relates to the first two-thirds or the first 39 of 66 books in our Bible called the Old Testament. I was told from a very young age, and I think there's a lot of truth to it, that when we're in the Old Testament, we are in what some people have called God's picture book. Now, to be clear, whenever you're reading through Scripture, I just want to affirm to you that uh, as our brother... I won't tell you our special day, brother. But as our brother would often say, what we have here in this book is actual, factual history. Like this actually happened. Even though some of the names we can't pronounce and some of the places we have no idea where they are, these are real people and real places and real events that, yes, really happened. Adam and Eve really existed. And we are their great, 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 down the list grandchildren here today. And so it's very clear for us to realize that this actually happened. The story that we're about to come to, 1003 BC, maybe give or take a year, but about 3,000 years ago, this actually factually happened. And yet there's more. This isn't just a history textbook. This isn't just a narrative of things that happened. This is the very written word of God. God breathed, divinely inspired. If it's here, it's here for a reason. And especially when we're in the Old Testament, what we have are not just actual factual historical narratives, but we also have spiritual realities here. There are types, there are shadows, there are illustrations and illusions. Um, Romans 15, the things that were written before the Old Testament are there for a positive example, for our learning. 1 Corinthians 10 says almost the same thing. The things that were written before are there for our, well, that's the negative, admonition, warning. And I trust this morning that we'll be able to see both facets on full display. And so we're going to start in a moment just looking at the history what actually factually happened. And then I trust the Lord will show us spiritually what the truth is for us today. But first, let's just relatively quickly um, go through that which actually factually happened. Now, normally we'd read through it. We're just going to look at the first 10 verses here in 2 Samuel 5. Normally we'd read through it, and then I'd comment. Um, What I want you to see is that there's three parts, three phases, three steps to the story to what actually happened. As in, um, if part one didn't happen, you couldn't get part two. And if part two doesn't happen, you can't get part three. And I'll show them to you, and then we're going to read through each part and discuss it. So part one begins in verse one, and it goes from verse one to five, where we read, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. Part two, verse six through eight, Then, some translations will say and, but same idea here, Then... The king and his men went to Jerusalem. And then finally, verse 9 and 10, then David dwelt in the stronghold. When you see the word then in scripture, we often say when you see the word therefore, ask what it's there for. It's wrapping something up. When you see the word then, you always want to say, well, then what? But you also want to turn around and say, well, what was the conditions before the then? The then's the pivot. And so we're going to look at three thens. That actually factually happened in about 1003 BC. So um, let's read the first part and then uh, we'll go from there. Um, I don't know, amongst that uh, row of young men, we'll include Ray and Daryl as young men, um, could I get someone to um, perhaps stand and project your voice? Verse 1 to 5 of 2 Samuel chapter 5. This is the first of the three thens. Colin, you didn't make eye contact, so good. All right. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king of Hebron. The king David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. 
and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. Awesome. Thanks, brother. Um, in my notes, I just put um, part one or step one. Then God's king was finally and fully submitted to. Then God's, we say rightful king, was finally and fully submitted to. And if you just want to, I alliterated it, you can just put number one, submission. Um, so I said, then God's rightful king was fully and finally submitted to. Um, it talks about him being anointed, which is just their way in that day of physically showing the spiritual reality. That this is the one who God had spiritually put his spirit upon. And their day it was only upon. For us, we get in so much better. Um, but they were saying, this is God's man. And, and we say, then what happened? Well, they anointed and submitted to him. But what happened before the then? And what I want to just tell you, we're going to do this really short, but I want to tell you, um, David had already been anointed king twice before this. The first one was the private one. Um, this is the Bible's version of the Cinderella story, or maybe Cinderella got it from the Bible. But you remember how David wasn't even invited to the anointing? God's chosen man, Samuel, came and said, Jesse, get all your boys together. One of them is going to be God's future king. One of them is the man after God's own heart. And they forgot about David. But David did come, and he was anointed there privately. Um, some say as young as age 12 or 13. Some say as old as 18, 19. We'll split the difference and say around age 15. How interesting that the man after God's own heart was still just a boy. Good reminder to our younger ones over here. Already fighting off lions. Already fighting off bears. Already versed in scripture and writing songs and psalms of praise to his God. And when God looked for someone to shepherd his two-legged sheep, he found someone who was very faithful with the four-legged ones. But he was already anointed once. And we know the story well, that for about 15 years or so, there were two anointed kings in Israel. Um, the king after the people's own heart, Saul, the big, small king, looked the part from head taller than everyone else, looked the perfect part, but inside there was not much going on. Meanwhile, the man after God's own heart, David, was God's rightful king, and the one that he had anointed and for 15 years, you know the story where it wasn't going so well. But finally, at age 30, something happened. One of those two kings died. Actually lost his head. That was the first king. Saul's out of the way. And finally, after all those years, David is publicly anointed, publicly recognized as king over all of one tribe. <laughs> Judah. His own tribe. King over one-twelfth of God's people. And for seven and a half years, all he does is stay at a place called Hebron down in the south. Interesting, that word means communion or fellowship. And just waits. And there as he communes, as he fellowships, he slowly, his house grows stronger. Everyone else's grows weaker. All the contenders and honestly pretenders to the throne kind of get put out of the way. And finally... After seven and a half years of waiting there, add about 15 more. For 20 plus years, you're my king, says the Lord. And after 20 to 25 years of waiting, finally, all of God's people come and submit to him here. We look at this story and probably go, eh, shrug our shoulders, kind of like, oh, cool, interesting. Um, can I just tell you that was not the case in that day? This wouldn't have just been like national news in the Gaza Gazette. Like this would have been international headlines. David, and then probably in brackets, underlined, emboldened, all in capitals, finally gets his rightful crown. Um, I think the other thing that's helpful for us to recognize is um, for all the other 11 tribes, all the heads of those tribes, all the elders men who would have been held in high esteem for many years, the people that were supposed to be wise and be able to say, this is God's mind on matters. Um, can you imagine what it would have been like making that long trip down south to Hebron? How um, humbling and humiliating must it have been 
for 11 twelfths of God's people to come and say, we are actually your bone and your flesh. Remembering that for many of them, they had actually been part of Saul's cabinet and were going after David's bones and his flesh. Um, can you imagine the humility it must have taken for them to confess uh, in times past when Saul was king, the one that we said was king and were submitting to him, um, actually it was you who were really the one kind of defending God's people and the ones who are actually shepherding and doing God's work. Can you imagine actually the terror as well? I'll remind you in those days, if you were to go and finally, after all those years of rejecting a king, finally subject yourself to him, um, there would have been many in that day who, if they would have done that, would uh, not have been going home afterwards. Um, their heads, which had told them to follow this other king, might have been lost and separated from their bodies. Um, this would have been something where if they uh, had been allowed to live, the leaders, um, they probably would have um, at least lost their titles, whether to their land or to their jobs. They would have been shamed. They would have become nothing in the new government. And yet, when you read this, do you have any hints of David saying, oh, finally, about time you showed up here. Any shame, any blame, any uh, titles taken or lands confiscated, any like retribution or persecution? No, God's rightful king, when his people finally come and subject themselves, submit themselves, confess that they were wrong and profess him as king, he takes the title. He says, thank you very much. And then what happens? Let's find out. Troy, do you want to read verse 6 to 8 for us? Part 2. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and lame can ward you off. They thought David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. On that day, David had said, Anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water jack to reach those laid blind, who are David's enemies. That is why they say the blind and lame will not enter the wooden palace. Awesome. Thanks, brother. Um, in my notes, I put, then God's rightful king goes and shows um, the path to success. God's rightful king goes, and I just put shows. Now, um, this is where we got to do a little bit of digging. This is where we got to do a little bit of work. I want you to stay with me because um, where we end up is glorious, but you got to realize that sometimes you got to weigh your way through here. So I told you 812 occasions where the word Jerusalem shows up. Anyone know the first time in our Bibles that the word Jerusalem shows up on the pages? I'll give you a hint. It's not Genesis 14. It's Salem there. It's a reference. But the first time Jerusalem shows up in the Word of God. Uh, for those of you who know timelines, it was about 400 and maybe two or 300 or years before. About 400 years to the day beforehand. Tenth chapter of the book of Yeshua. Joshua. Nate gets the point on that. Let me give you a bit of background. I heard from a brother this morning that he's reading Exodus, so I don't want to give too much away. But you remember, God comes and through Moses, let my people go. They're delivered out of the land of Egypt. And just over a year later, they're showing in the south part of Israel. They say, there's the land. I promise it to you. It's a land that's a good land. It's flowing with milk and honey. Go forth and take it. And what do God's people say? Ooh. Right? There's giants in the land. We will not go. We actually want to go back to Egypt. And God says, that's it. You can wander around in the wilderness for the next 38 years and nine months until you all perish in unbelief. All but Joshua and a guy named Caleb. Caleb. Good. So 38 years and nine months later, Joshua, whose name means deliverer or savior, possessor of salvation, comes and he takes them, not the southern route, because God doesn't care the route that we get in. He takes them middle of the country on the east side. And um, after they have some initial success, like one city that looked impenetrable, it just crumbled to the ground. And uh, after a bit of failure, they eventually get a place called AI as well. And news travels throughout the country. All the local peoples, the Amorites, and the Jebusites, and the Perizzites, and all those otherites, 
News travels out. And you have to realize, these people are wicked and evil. They aren't innocent. You read a place like Leviticus 18 and find out that they're sacrificing their children. They're not innocent. They're wicked, evil people that God says have got to go. But news travels out that um, God's with his people and they're starting to take the land. And for some people, they say, okay, let's deceive them. We'll come and make it look like we came from afar and let's make a peace treaty with them. But there's others that say, okay, we're going to fight against this. Let's try to defeat it in numbers. And the five major city-states of the whole south of Israel, their five kings come together and say, let's form a confederacy and let's trap the Israelites. Let's just amalgamate and then we'll defeat them all at once. And the leader of those five kings was a guy named Adonizedek, who was the king of Jerusalem. Nate's looking this all up. That's good. First mention, he's the leader. I won't give it to you, you can read it later, but Joshua 10 isn't just a long chapter, it's the longest day in all of history. It was a very long, long, long day, but by the end of it, God's people had defeated defeated all five kings. They captured them, everyone got to walk and crush their neck, and then those guys were hung by their necks. And what you find out is that the king of Jerusalem, defeated, gone, killed. The men of Jerusalem, either dead or they fled. And there's a little hint even in there in Joshua that even the very city, this capital of the Jebusites, it had been called Jebus, the capital city, the stronghold of the Jebusites, had actually just been burnt to the ground and crushed. There's a hint there. But had all of Israel, all the promised land been taken by God's people? Not yet. There were still other campaigns. Anyone know how long it took for progressive victory for God's people to at least capture the bulk of the land under Joshua. Seven years. Very good, Glory. Seven years it took for them to go and get everything. Maybe the best way to try to think this thing through is if, uh, say, out of the blue, our uh, southern neighbors, the Americans, were trying to come and conquer Canada. Or maybe they were just saying, we should divide Canada from west and east, and let's take Manitoba first. How would the Americans probably take us? <laughs> Hopefully not nuclear weapons. Well, what would be the main places they'd want to take if they are going to take over Manitoba? Winnipeg? <laughs> probably Portage and Brandon would be target one. You want to get the main highway going across, take the main transport. So maybe they would bomb that and send ground troops. They'd probably want to leave some troops in the major cities like Steinbach and Morden Winkler in the south. Maybe after they take Winnipeg, Portage and Brandon and control the major east-west highway, they might send up a troops to go and take over Thompson, the gateway to the north. Maybe Dauphin to the northwest. But if the Americans had ground troops on every corner in Winnipeg, Portage, Brandon, Steinbach, Morden Winkler up in Thompson, would we say that the Americans have taken over Manitoba? Now, does that mean that they would have ground troops completely controlling, I don't know, Oakville or Fannisdale at that point? Probably not. That's the case halfway through the book of Joshua. They have taken all the major cities in the land. I think there's 32 or 33 kings in Joshua 12 that they've killed and taken their cities, including Jerusalem. But did they have every single little town and village in the land at that point? No. So what God said is, all right, we've conquered the land. Let's now divide it up. Each one of your tribes gets the inheritance. This is your land, Zebulun. This is yours, Naphtali. This is yours, Issachar. And what your job is within the territory you have, I want you, every place your foot can step, it's yours. Take it. Possess your possessions. So Israel did really well in capturing the whole, but how did they do when they went tribe by tribe to capture their individual areas? not so good. At first, I have to admit, it went well. You'll read this in Judges chapter 1. At first, the first tribe that was told, now this is your land, go and take it, go and conquer it, go and own it, was Judah. The same tribe that David was from, down in the south. And they did pretty well. You'll read in Judges chapter 1 that they went and took over basically everywhere there. They were so excited that they saw a city being rebuilt just outside their territory. That was a city on the hill named Jerusalem, or Jebus. That's in the territory of Benjamin. And they ran in there anyways and burned it to the ground and sent them all running. 
And then they went down to the south and helped Caleb take a mountain. But then some problems started coming. The next tribe up was Benjamin, of which in their territory, on the edge with Judah, was the city of Jerusalem. And it says specifically, they did not bother even to drive out the inheritance, inhabitants. They said, oh, we've got general victory. We're kind of tired after seven plus years. This is good enough. And the next tribe up didn't bother. And the next tribe up said, you know what? Instead of killing these people, instead of taking every Oakville and Fannisdale, we'll just um, tell you what, you guys can stay there. Fannisdale's not all that big and all the rest, but um, we just want some taxes from you. And slowly but surely, you find out that tribes that did not led to tribes that could not. And um, the next 350 years, called the time of the judges, was one in which whenever God's people were far from him, following idols, not too worried about him, the very same people that they had defeated and should have said running and beaten them, they were rising up and putting Israel under subjection, and God had to rise up a judge or deliverer in areas. In the case of Jerusalem... 400 years before 2 Samuel chapter 5, it had already been defeated. Their king had been killed. Their men were dead and fled. The city had been burnt to the ground. Its inhabitants had been scattered. But they grew complacent. They shrugged their shoulders. They said, good enough. And what you find out is that those inhabitants came back in there. They regathered. They rebuilt. And for the next 400 years, there was this place called Jebus, an enemy stronghold, a city on a hill right in the center of Israel, a place that should have given off light, and it was a place of darkness. It was a place where the enemies of God that should have been defeated and out of the way long before were standing there and daring God's people to even try to enter in. They were mocking and ridiculing. Do you think that was an offense to God? who had given the whole land to his people? You think it was a stench in his nostrils? And so what do you think about the man after God's own heart, the rightful king of Israel? What do you think his thoughts on the city of Jebus was? I'm going to tell you it's this. Um, in fact, this will be the one bunny trail, and then I'll bring this back. But there's only one mention that I can find in about the 350 years preceding 2 Samuel chapter 5 of the city of Jerusalem. I'm sure Israel many times tried to go and conquer it and all the rest, but had failure after failure after failure. They couldn't get it. But there's only one mention that I can find in about 350 years before this of the city of Jerusalem. Anyone know where it is? I'll give you a hint. It's in a very famous chapter for Samuel 17. Sunday school lesson, giant of a Philistine, the giant king hiding in his tent so the other king had to come in. It's at the end of David and Goliath. And after David slings the stone, Goliath's either knocked out cold or whatnot, David cuts off his head and makes sure he's really dead, chases off all the Philistines. David does two things after he's chased off the Philistines and comes back. Um, the first one I'll let you ponder on, where he just takes Goliath's sword and armor and puts it in his own tent. But the second thing that's mentioned is David goes and takes um, Goliath's head. We'll not be too vivid in the description for younger ears here. He marches 20 miles uphill and stands outside a city with that skull. In the proverbial, you're next, I'm coming for you. This is what happens to anyone who defies the army of the living God. What city did he do that at? Jerusalem. He stands outside the stronghold of the enemy and has the head right there. There's actually some Jewish tradition. I'm just saying, I'll step away from the Bible because this is tradition. That the place where he stood with the skull was on the major route just outside of town where everyone could see what was happening. A place that um, in the New Testament is called Golgotha. The place of the skull. The place where his greater son one day would crush the head of the serpent. I'll let you ponder that. But what we had and why I read Psalm 132 is I wonder... If David, in the days leading up to him being crowned king over the whole country, 
Even before that, as soon as he was anointed, he was such close fellowship, such close communion with God, that he knew that the city of Jerusalem was a great offense to God, and that God was going to go and dwell there. I wonder how many of us are that close to know exactly what God wants to do in the places that are most offensive to him. But the story goes on, and time quickly is departing from us, so we'll pick up the speed here. But I want you to notice that as soon as the rightful king is crowned and submitted to for the, by all of God's people, he immediately goes and leads out and says, there's a place we got to go and deal with. I love how it's put in 1 Chronicles 11. It says, then David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is Jebus, where the Jebusites dwelt, the original inhabitants of the land. The people that should have been gone 400 years before and now have a stronghold that just stands there and mocks and ridicules God's people, David says, okay, mission number one, first thing we're going to do is take care of this enemy stronghold. And notice the first thing that happens as soon as they arrive. Look at what the enemies do. First of all, they just mock and ridicule. Um, your David can't come in here. Um, we're so well defended that we could get a bunch of blind guys and people that can't walk and they'd be able to defend you. Like, do you know how many times people have tried this and they failed? How many times have you even tried this and it's just been futile? Like, go home. Just give up, give in, just quit. And that's always the case of what the enemy does. Read Nehemiah, read Ezra, read what happens when Sennacherib sends his messenger and says, do you know how many people have tried and failed before? Like, what are you even trying to bother? Just give in, just quit. But... What does God's rightful king say? Well, we find out he hates them. But notice as well that he shows them the path to success. Verse 8, whoever climbs up the way of the water um, shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind, shall become my chief and captain. Um, You read elsewhere that that was Joab, the most ambitious man I read in scripture. But let me just give you the context. This is something that I'm surprised no one's made a movie of. David came and seized this stronghold. It's a city on a hill, huge walls. The only way Jerusalem has ever fallen throughout history is through months and years of sieging it. Basically, you encamp around it, starve the people out, eventually build a wall that's about parallel that you can get into the city. Takes years. But not here. God's rightful king says, I know a way that we can take this stronghold in a day. He looks at the city and says, yeah, it's way up there on a hill, on a mountain of stone. We'll need a different route here. He also knows something. Jerusalem, incredible place for defense. Its only downside is one thing. There's no natural water source in it. The, uh, the closest fresh water source they have is just on the eastern side of town, which isn't very far, but it's way, way down. <laughs> A huge drop. It's called the Brook Kidron that just runs right there on the far sides of the Mount of Olives where the Lord Jesus would often go and pray. But the Brook Kidron. And how they figured, how do we get water in the city, was on the eastern edge within the wall, they got some guys together. I don't know how long it took them with pixes and axes, but they made a straight shaft 60 plus feet down through rock that would have been just lower than the level of the river. And then what they did was they kind of dug a canal slightly uphill to the base of the river so that water would flow in here. And then they created a pulley system where they could always get water up into the city. And so what David said is, you know what? I kind of figured out how they did this. Um, What we need is we need someone who I guess can hold their breath a little bit. Um, You're going to go down into this river here and you'll find the entrance and then you'll swim 30 to 40 feet, I, I would guess. Um, And when you get to the end of it, if you're still alive, pop your head up so you can breathe. Then you need to free solo up straight rock 60 feet. Um, And then what you'll need to do is kind of navigate your way throughout the city you've never been into. Um, Make sure no one sees you and then find the front gate and we'll be waiting. If you open that up, we'll go and take the city. Does that sound crazy? Does that sound extreme? Like if you're looking at this through just natural eyes, you would say the Jebusites are right. Let's go home. But if you're truly submitted to the king and take him at his word, what do you do? You get on your swimming goggles and say, let's see. And sure enough, they did. And you know what happened? They defeated the stronghold of the Jebusites in one day. And then what? 
I'll read it to you, verse 9 and 10. Then David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David, and David built up all around from the Milo and inward. I just put, then God's rightful king stayed and reigned. If you remember 400 years earlier, they'd already defeated the city and let it in ashes. But they walked away. And uh, under their own eyes and in their own complacency, the people came back and rebuilt it bigger and better than ever. And for 400 years, it had been a stench in God's nostrils. And uh, if you even read what Milo means, it was actual literal stench, what their uh, city dumper landfill was like. And it mocked and ridiculed the people of God. In the very place they should have possessed, there was an enemy. Meanwhile, the reason why David could go and hang out in Hebron for seven and a half years was simply the fact that there was a man named Caleb who said, I want that, that mountain. I want that city of the giants called Kirjath Sefer, I think it is. And uh, he changed the name of it to Hebron, a place of communion. A place from the giants became the place of communion with God and he and his inhabitants stayed there. And I just want you to notice that what God's king does here you know, you and I would see, oh, this is an enemy stronghold. Let's take it and then let's just torture and kill the people and burn it to the ground and rake it so no one can ever find it again. That's not what God's king does here. He, uh, he says someone else can stay and guard Hebron. But um, that place that has stood as a long time offense to God and a troublesome place for God's people, um, I'm going to make that my capital. I'm going to change the ne- name of this from the city of Jebus capital city of the Jebusites to my capital city. It's going to go from the stronghold of the enemy to the stronghold of God. Stronghold of Jebus to stronghold of Zion. And oh, by the way, let's make it better. I love what Aaron had to say last week. I'm pointing to sons of Aaron here. Um, When he said that when God restores, he makes it better on the far side. Aren't we happy when Jesus Christ died for us that uh, the place we're brought to is not the Garden of Eden? We're in a far better place than Adam ever was. We get eternal security. There's no um, tree of the knowledge of good of evil that could still tempt us and cause us to fall, isn't it? He's brought us to a better place than what we ever were. It could have been in Adam. And you even see here that David said, oh, the landfill, that place south of town that stinks, that's literally offensive, that's just a garbage dump. I'm going to rebuild that and incorporate it as a strength in my city. We won't talk about all the implications of it. But notice what happens then. Then, verse 10, David went on and became great. And the Lord host was with him. His name, his fame spreads everywhere. It wasn't how great is Joab? How great is God's people? No, no, how great is their king? Verse 11, then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and helps out. You find out that others take notice and praise him. Um, Verse 12, you find out that the kingdom is expanded and exalted. Um, You find out that God's king actually becomes fruitful and more children come along the way. Um, And yes, if you read the last part of the chapter, then other enemies take notice immediately and start fighting. Um, If you'd be so gracious, just because I've seen people walk in and out. Let me just summarize the actual, factual, historical story that we've seen so far. And you can agree with me whether this is right. But thus far, we've seen that under God's people, faithfully following God's man, a man named Joshua, New Testament Jesus, who, um, whose name means deliverer and savior, they experienced incredible victory. Giants fled, cities crumbled, and yes, major enemy strongholds defeated. <laughs> but give it some time. They grew complacent. They said, good enough. They began focusing on other things. They became divided. And then all of a sudden, defeat after defeat after defeat came. And the very places that they thought were long gone in their past were rebuilt up and became strongholds where they could not take down. Places where they were mocked and ridiculed for a long period of time, right dead center in the land. But... In the very same land, God's rightful king was reigning and ruling over some of the people in some of the land. Then they came to their senses, confessed their shortcomings, professed him as king, and said, you could be king over everything. 
And then they followed that king to the very place that probably was a place of shame and blame. They resisted the mockery of the enemy. They believed what God's king had to say. And that stronghold was gone. Then they stayed wherever their king was. They must have rejoiced at the fact that he was making it bigger and better. They watched him take a place that was a stronghold of the enemy to become his own stronghold, his own capital, a place of great glory. And then his name is made great. His fame expands. He is fruitful. And yeah, there's more battles coming as enemies take notice. Do we agree that's what's there 3,000 years ago? Does anything of what I just said, of I don't know, does it ring any bells spiritually? Any parallels you can think of in our day? James chapter 4, please. Here's where we transition to realize about the living word of God, divinely inspired with examples and warnings and admonitions and pictures and parallels for us. In the, um, in the pages of this book, between 2 Samuel 5 and James chapter 4, we learn a lot of things. Progressive revelation. As you transfer from Old Testament to New Testament, from B.C. to A.D., from B.C., before Jesus, before the cross, to now A.D. in the year of our Lord, we find out some things. Um, just because a brother mentioned it to me, we find out that what's written in the book of Exodus where God wants to bring his people out of bondage and slavery and the cruel oppression of the ruler of that present day, um, also happens to be something that God wants to still do in our day. We discover that, um, you know how on the night of the Passover, where the lamb had to be slayed and the blood had to be applied to the wooden door frame? We find out that that happened 2,000 years ago. That lamb was the lamb of God. Christ, our Passover, slain for us. In the same way that they had to take God at his word and personally apply the blood of the lamb to the doorpost of their house so that the wrath of God, certainty of death, would pass over. That all was a picture to us of our day. That for everyone who believes in Jesus, who transfers their trust from themselves and the systems of this world to him, who take him at his word, who say, you died the death I deserve, you bore your, my sin in your, your, your body on the tree, your blood was taken and shed on my behalf, we too also get to have God's wrath pass over us. In, in the same way that the children of Israel, it says, were baptized into Moses, just meaning that they went down into the earth and the Red Sea, and came out to freedom and new life on the far side. Everyone who believes in Jesus. Spiritually is baptized into him. When he died we died. When he was buried we were buried. When he rose from the dead we rose to newness of life. And the same thing death. That there was no future for everyone in Egypt. For us we died but there's life on the far side. All of this is part of the good news. All of this is part of the gospel of God. All of this is what the Bible talks about as justification. This is the way that God can look on us as sinners and say, no, no. You get my righteousness. I'm just to let you off the hook here because I already got my son for it. And isn't it amazing that not a single one of the children of Israel, after they went out to Egypt, even though some wanted to, not a single one went back. Same glorious truth for us. Once the blood is applied, once. Once you have been buried with him, not in literal baptism, but spiritual baptism, you're out. But please do not stop there in understanding the good news of the gospel. It's not simply the book of Exodus is the gospel, but God also has everything that follows into the book of Joshua. It's not just that Christ is our Passover lamb, but he's also the captain of our salvation. Not just the lamb of God, but the lion. My apologies to any fans of Southern Gospel here, but um, the expression of crossing the Jordan, someday I'll cross the Jordan, I'll cross that river. Um, sorry to tell you, but the promised land is not a picture of heaven. Um, I don't know about you, but I'd be kind of surprised if I get to heaven someday and I see a bunch of Amorites and Jebusites and Parasites and all of them ready to fight me. Um, 
Woe betides us if we simply say that the gospel is God will deliver you out of slavery and bondage and the cruel oppressor of the power of Satan, the ruler of this present evil age. And what you have is a life of his believers wandering around in the desert. It's not true. The message of the gospel is not simply he wants to deliver you out of slavery to sin, bondage to your own affections, um, being powerless against the ruler of this age. It's not just deliver you out, bring you out. He also wants to bring us in. He longs on this side of eternity to bring us into a land that is good, to bring us into rich fulfillment. Hebrews 3 talks about how he wants to bring us to a place of rest, literally refreshment. Um, if you look at it, Canaan is a far better place to live. Israel is a far better place to live than Egypt. Egypt is a big desert that just looks really good because everyone lives along one river. Um, it's kind of like Vegas in my sight. There's a strip on Vegas that looks great. The rest of it's a desert wilderness that's just barren and nothing. Misery is what I would say, having been there now. Versus the land that God brought them into. You could go skiing in the morning and swimming in the ocean, in the, say, in the afternoon. Everything you could imagine is there. Far more than the, the bad breath food, the leeks and the onions and the garlic of Egypt you can find in Israel. But in the same way that God's people had to take God at his word by faith, believe him to apply the blood of the, the lamb on the doorpost, they had to believe him as well, that he has bigger and better plans for them and wants to bring them into a promised land. And I want to be clear, this isn't that it's physical health that he's promising or material wealth. It's blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. What he wants to bring his people into is like John 7. Out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. You'll have drinking of this and you won't want anything else. John 8, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Your brother talked about this on Tuesday night. John 9, you'll see spiritual realities that everyone else is blind to. John 10, not just, yeah, you get everlasting life to come in heaven. You get life abundant, life to the full now. His message in the upper room to his disciples was John 14, I'll give you peace that the world doesn't give you. We think peace here just means no conflict. He says peace no matter the conflict. Joy, full, my joy will remain in you. The knowledge that there's a father who doesn't just love you but likes you. And as he says at the end of John 16, yeah, you're going to have tribulations here, but guess what? You're going to have battles. I've already overcome the world. And if you follow me, you'll get into that victory. How many of us here this morning, hearing especially the message last week and thinking back upon following our Joshua, how many of us here in the early days after we put our faith in Jesus can say, wow, those, um, those previous passions and pursuits, when we followed him, it was like the Jordan River, it just dried up, it was gone. Um, those things that controlled my life earlier that were giants, they fled when I was following my savior. Um, literally things that I would think were insurmountable in terms of what I was after and that controlled me, they um, just collapsed and crumbled right in front of me. How many of us can think about our early days and yet give it some time and all of a sudden in our walks of faith with him, we found out, oh wait, there's, there's more enemies. Um, some of them we've tried to defeat and um, they haven't quite fled yet. And that's Okay. God actually told his children when they were going in, he said, there are going to be some enemies that I'm going to leave there so that you, there are future wars, future times you'll depend on me. The land's too big for you at first. Um, there's other enemies that we um, just were complacent with and said made peace with. We just didn't go after them. And they're big and menacing. There's still other ones that we thought had licked. We thought they were completely gone and slowly but surely, they've rebuilt themselves as strongholds in our lives. And they are mean and they are menacing and they mock and ridicule us. And now, as every time we even approach it, failure and frustration and futility have followed. These strongholds of sin, these strongholds of self. I don't want to get too explicit, but maybe they're like fortresses of, I'll say it, fornication. Greek word, pornea. Um, ramparts of wrath where we just can't control ourselves. Maybe they're like these castles of envy and jealousy that when we look at others, we just can't help but boil over. 
these um, citadels of just overwhelming sin that no matter what we do, we stare at them and they just keep coming time and time and time again. These bulwarks are bastions of besetting sin. Read Galatians 5 in the list there and see if any of those strike home. If we want to get really technical, when you read the word stronghold in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 10, you find out it's not even the things that we're doing with our hands. It's this. It's these recurring thought patterns, these inaccurate, unbiblical ways that we process the world. They've been lies that have been seeded by the father of lies. They're these improper ideas that Satan just put in there and they've sprouted and they're huge. And everything that happens to us in our world, we get processed through that and it causes us to live in a place of failure and futility. Just like Aaron spoke about last week, a fish doesn't know that it's wet because it's been in the water so long. We know something's not right, but we don't know how or what is going on. The more I've thought and asked the Lord to help me understand this, I see some like day in and day out where I work, both with believers and unbelievers. One of the most common ones is I was never loved. I'm not loved. I'm basically unlovable. You talk to some leading experts in the world of addiction, they say that is the exact thought pattern that gets people into addictions. Others say it's the exact thought pattern that leads people to stay in these abusive relationships because they want any sort of resemblance of love and will put up with anything. I see it in some believers. Without mentioning names, I'm not even saying they're here this morning, um, the thought of, I'm spoiled goods. I'm ruined, I'm dirty, I'm beyond repair. Something I did in the past or something that's been done to me has become my identity. And I won't even bother getting up and even trying to fight again. Just in that place of just brokenness and futility. And scripture tells us what you have to do is take each one of those thoughts that comes to your mind and present it to Jesus Christ and say, is that what you think? Oh wait, you love me. Um, you say I'm a new creation. You're a God who restores. I need to take that brick that would build this thing up and chuck it aside and brick by brick this thing will come down. There's no doubt to me here this morning that some of us, when it talks about our lives of faith, our uh, promised land, we're in a state of failure and futility. We're frustrated. We can remember times of victory in the past and can't figure out what's going on now. Maybe it's one specific fortress or stronghold that you stare at that recurrently just mocks you and you feel defeated. Maybe there's whole pockets of your entire realm where there's only a little section that you think that you see the Lord working and everything else is just failure. And we hear a message last week, God restores and he makes it better on the far side. And what a word in season to us who are weary from Aaron. And I praise the Lord. Perhaps there was even some of us here last week who were so excited. We said, we're going to go defeat it. And by Tuesday, we were back on flat on our face, having been defeated again. And we're like Paul at the end of Romans 7, of saying, what can I do? What four-step plan do I need? What method? What book do I read? What secret prayer? What's the secret sauce here? What's the solution? And I want to tell you exactly what James says and exactly what we've seen before. It's not a what, it's a who. And that who is not you. I'll read this to you. This is um, God's recipe for um, what we'll find in time is a delicious, humble sandwich. James 4, verse 6. But he, that's God, gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And here's what I want to just point out. Therefore, step one, submit to God, the rightful king. Part two, what's inevitably going to follow? Resist the devil, and he will flee. What do we do afterwards? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And all the things that follow intuitively come from that. We will cleanse our hands as sinners. We will purify our hearts, previously being double-minded. Um, the things that we used to think and would have laughed at and thought were wonderful will now lament and mourn and weep. That laughter will be turned to mourning our joy to gloom. And then the end of the sandwich, the second part, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. When you read the book of James up to this point, there's a parallel. This is probably the first one of the epistles written, probably 10 to 15 years after our Lord's death, burial, and glorious ascension to heaven. And at first, these Jewish believers had a lot of victory. 
things were pretty good. Strongholds were falling away. They were having incredible joy and fellowship with one another. But um, you get some hints that where there were some frustrations there. Um, the people who are so united at, at one point now are having wars and fights. Um, the people who used to only be praising God, now sometimes their tongues are praising God and sometimes it's cursing God. Um, the people who used to just say we're all one are actually giving preference to people who have money and not to those who don't. And um, in chapter one, you even find out when there's failures, they're saying, well, this is God's fault. He's tempting me. And all throughout the book, James is trying to bring them to a place where you need to confess and recognize you're not doing well. There's failure and frustration. And finally, you get to the middle of, or the opening of chapter four, and he just unleashes. And he says, look, you double-minded people, you're committing adultery on God. You're taking certain control of your life and love in the world and completely separating yourselves from the God who loves you. And you would think by the time you come to verse six that he would just lambaste them. He would just tear them apart. But instead, he comes to, but God gives more grace. His divine enabling, his divine power, as one person said it, it's that which makes up the difference from where we're at to where he wants us to be. And the people he gives grace to are not the proud. Proud comes from the word pride. Pride, the middle of it is I. And it's the people who say, I've got this. I can still do this. I got a new idea. I'm going to get up and I'm going to... And God sets himself in military opposition. He doesn't come at us. He just says, you're going nowhere. But to those who are humble, meaning those who are absolutely devastated, broken, on their face, saying, I can't do this. But Lord, I know you can. He says, ah, I've got some power for you. I've got some grace. And you say, well, how do I do that? One, submit to God. Submit is a word that many don't like in the Christian world today because of abuses of authority, understandably. But I tell you, our king, don't worry about it. Does he ever rub our face in it? Did David rub their faces in it? David's greater son will not. We come and say, it's all yours. Every area of my life I give my work to you. I give my wife to you. I give my family to you. I give my bank account to you. I give my reputation to you. Some have talked about the idea of just imagining a throne getting off and letting him get on. I like it. The one that works for me is I think of a car. And I get out of the driver's seat and I walk around, keep the, keep the keys in the ignition, I sit shotgun. And I wait for the Lord to get in there and drive the vehicle. It's not Jesus take the wheel because I can take it back and I still got the pedals. It's me sitting shotgun. Whenever and wherever you want to take me, Lord, I'm in. Um, if you want me to do something like adjust the AC, change the music, talk with you, I'm good with that. If we pull up to someone and you roll down the window, you give me the words and I'll talk to them. You're in control. It's not just let go and let God. It's let go, let God, and then let him direct you. We still have a role here. And after you do that, I guarantee you on the authority of the word of God, what's the first thing that someone's going to do called the enemy? He's going to take notice and immediately come to you and say, oh, really? Really? You know how many times you failed on this before? Do you know how many times people have tried that one before? Like, what's the point? What do we do? We don't go at them. We just do what all the angels do and said, the Lord rebuke you. We also set ourselves in military opposition, say, I'm going nowhere. I'm not backing off here. And not because we're great, but because all of a sudden we're submitted and we got a much bigger and stronger king looking right by, over our shoulders at him. He flees. And the last part, after you have some victory on this front, maybe that fortress of fornication seems to fall. Maybe all of a sudden some other stronghold goes away. What do you do? Go nowhere. <laughs> Dwell with him. Wherever you are, Lord, I'm there. Be like Elisha when Elijah said, I'm going this way. He says, I'm not going anywhere else. Wherever you are, I'm going, Lord. And all of a sudden, you might find, and this is the, the last, probably the last thing I'll say. You'll find that that former place, that formal area, that thing that's been so much shame in your life that just makes you melt, that if it's mentioned here today, you're either getting really red in the face or some of you are getting pale. Have you ever noticed that with our king, um, he takes those things that are places of shame and turns them to places that glorify his name? You ever noticed how, um, I don't know, someone like Isaiah, 
remember what he said? Woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Where was the area of his sin? His mouth. Um, which man was used by God to speak the most in the Old Testament on behalf of him? Which man's lips are quoted the most times in the New Testament? Come to the New Testament. There was one very rambunctious, zealous disciple of Jesus's who um, had a very big and public fall that um, caused him to even just say, I'm done, I'm going back fishing. His name was Peter. And um, the Lord restored him and um, actually had him give the sermon on Pentecost. Um, where did that sermon take place? Jerusalem. Where had he fallen? Jerusalem. Um, and who was the apostle to the Jews that spent the bulk of his for, uh, ministry moving forward? Where, did, where was he? Jerusalem. Have you ever noticed that the people who seem to have the most fruitful, productive, powerful ministry often uh, formerly had uh, anything but that? Like the people that I know that are most powerful and most useful helping people with addictions, like with bottles, whether either there's pills in there or there's drink in there, um, were people that formerly had huge struggles and strongholds of drink or pills in their life. Um, the people that I send abused and misused people to um, were the ones they themselves who were abused and misused and have found victory on the far side. Um, the people that you find that may be the best at marriage counseling were the ones who, for many years, their marriage was on the rocks. God's in the business of taking enemy strongholds, capitals of the enemy that mock and ridicule us right in the middle of the place he wants to bring us to, and not just defeating them, but as one person says, he mines ministries out of the pits of our despair. He takes these places that were formerly just horrific in our sight that kept us in failure and frustration, and he says, how about I use that now as a place where my light will shine forth and I get the glory? Past failure is not final. Victory in Jesus is not just past tense. There's still victories to be found in Jesus. Strongholds of the enemy can become strongholds for God. And um, I'll leave you with one final verse. It kind of mimics what Aaron started with. He started in Galatians 6 last week where he talked about um, if someone's overtaken in an offense, if someone's like stronghold just takes them and ruins them and it's so public and obvious, um, it doesn't say you who are the elders, you who are the preachers, you who are the big name people. It's just you who are in that moment walking with the spirit and having those victories. Come restore them and do so very humbly lest you realize that you're going to get overtaken. Um, we're all capable of this, folks. But here's the inverse. James 5, I'll just read it to you, verse 16. If you're one of those people that have these strongholds, that have these failures and frustrations, one final area that's really practical, that's helped, and I've seen victory, is um, yes, we want to submit to God. We want to resist the devil. We'll see him flee. We draw near to God. But um, there's a lot of other people here who want to help you and slay that enemy. Confess these tendencies. Confess these trespasses. Confess these strongholds in your life to one another. Not that we'll throw rocks at you, not that we'll cancel you, but we'll pray for you and you'll be healed. Father, I'm just going to leave it there and um, please you do the work. Um, many thoughts expressed here this morning, but just praying that you by your spirit would direct each one of us. We want to be those, Lord, who um, come to you and say all of our lives are yours. You have the victory. You lead the way. And um, for your glory's sake, we pray that... Um, enemy strongholds in our lives, places that are guilty and full of shame right now would be places that eventually the flag would be marked for you and a place where your name's glorified. So yeah, would you do the work and just um, committing such things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.